Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. Open your Bibles if you have them to Malachi chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, I'd love for you to use one of the Bibles you can find in the rack in front of you, underneath the seat in front of you. My name's Brad. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're finishing our series through the Old Testament, the last Old Testament book of Malachi. Next two weeks, we will do standalone messages, and then at the end of October, last Sunday of October, I think, Lord willing, we are going to begin a new series on James, the book of James, which, like Malachi, we will creatively entitle James. (laughs) Our culture is fascinated with judgment. Have you ever noticed that? We even have blockbuster movies talking about Judgment Day. We're fascinated with the concept of judgment. Don't judge me. What right do you have to judge others? And I think all of this speaks to this nagging sense in the human soul that we know that judgment is coming. We know that it's a real thing, and so we try and and make it more palatable to our fallen ears through movies or through objections to a biblical understanding of judgment. And in God's kindness, he has caused the writer of the Old Testament book Malachi, the prophet Malachi, to make the last words in the last book of the Old Testament about judgment. In a sense, the Old Testament is like God's promise made, and then the New Testament is about God's promise kept. But the last chapter of Malachi is pointing us even beyond that, beyond Jesus' first coming to Jesus' second coming to the end of the age when God will finally and fully judge mankind. What are we to think of this judgment day? Well, I think Malachi chapter 4 gives us a direction that we should look. So let's, let's read Malachi 4, verses 1 through 6. And then to help us understand this text, I want to ask and hopefully answer three questions. The first two questions, I think, will guide us through the text itself. And then the third question is, in a sense, of application of the truths that we see in this text. So let me read Malachi chapter 4, starting in verses 1 through 6. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great 
an awesome day of the Lord comes. And He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now let's pray. Lord, help us understand this text. This is Your Word. It is inspired by You. And by that we mean much more than it is inspirational. We mean that it is breathed out by You as Timothy was told by Paul in 2 Timothy that the Word of God is breathed out by God Himself. And therefore, because it is inspired, written by You through human hands, it is without error. It's perfect. It's unable to be wrong, in fact, in all that it speaks to. It's sufficient for all that we need to know for life and godliness. And it is authoritative in our lives. We submit ourselves to Your Word. We submit ourselves to what it says to us. And we, we need Your help. We need the Spirit of illumination. The Holy Spirit that resides in Your people. And the Holy Spirit that is at work in this room in all hearts, convicting the world of sin, drawing unbelievers to Yourself. We need Your Holy Spirit to help us understand this text. And we pray that this Holy Spirit that has written this word would shine the light of the gospel on your son so that we might see Christ more clearly and we might be made more like him. And for those that do not know him, might come to know him through your sovereign grace. Lord, I pray that you do this all for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Three questions. Number one, to help us understand this text, what will this day be like that, that Malachi is speaking of here in, in verse 1? He says, for behold, the day is coming. And so all of Malachi has been a kind of complaint that the people have against God about how they don't feel like God has been good on His word. God has promised to restore Israel, to bring them back to the land, to bless them, and that this new glory that He will give them will be even greater than the former glory. And they're back in the land, but they're still under captivity of the Persian Empire at this time. And they're not realizing all of the blessings that God has promised them. And we find out in our age, now knowing through perspective of the New Testament being written that helps shed light on the Old Testament, that the shadow promises of the Old Testament are fulfilled in the substance of the gospel in Christ. And so many of the promises of complete and total liberation and glorification and blessing of God's people in the Old Testament are realized only through Christ in the New. And so the people of Israel at this time are in a stage of the unfolding plan of redemption whereby they're not fully realizing the promises that God has been made and they don't have a correct perspective, and they're complaining to God about it. And they are asking God, why, why are we still where we are? And one of the things that comes out in their complaints through the book of Malachi is that they're accusing God of not being just, that he doesn't really care. Is he really powerful? And this answer here from God through the prophet is that, yes, there is a day of justice, a day of judgment coming. And he goes on in chapter 4 to describe what this day will be like. So what will this day be like? We want to think of it, I think, in two, 
in two terms, two applications, it will be different for two different groups of people. First, for the wicked and the arrogant and the evildoers, it will be a dreadful day, a dreadful day. Look at verse 1 again. He says, for behold, the day is coming burning like an oven when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. First, first we need to see that for the arrogant, for the evildoers, the day of judgment will be a dreadful day. Look at how Malachi describes this day of the Lord, which we know prophetically is pointing us to Christ's return. It will be, it will be a, a day where the, it burns like an oven. He says it will set these evildoers ablaze, these who do not trust in God. And it will be so decisive that it will leave neither root nor branch. Now these are huge, magnificent, dreadful descriptions of this judgment day. Jesus, who sometimes people who aren't very familiar with the Bible often attribute a kind of softness to, don't realize that Jesus also in the Gospels talks often about this judgment day that is coming. In fact, in Mark chapter 9, verses 47 through 48, listen to how Jesus describes this, this eternal judgment that will come upon those evildoers that Malachi speaks of here in Malachi 4, verse 1. He says, speaking about sin, he says, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where, verse 48, their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And there are many other instances in the gospel where Jesus speaks about judgment. And it's a dreadful day for those that are not trusting in God and not trusting in what His Son has done on the cross. These are, these are magnificent, dreadful, awe-inspiring descriptions of eternity separated from God. It will be a dreadful day. What are we to make of these things? In one sense, because we live in the age of, of CGI and blockbuster shows and, and, and uh, uh, superhero-type cataclysmic, apocalyptic movies, we can almost categorize these descriptions. I think we're prone to categorize these biblical descriptions of this dreadful day as almost kind of a mythology. Don't fall into that trap. That is a wrong way to see and hear these scriptures. Listen to how John Calvin describes these descriptions of eternity, of judgment, of being separated from God forever. And John Calvin was one of the great reformers of the Protestant Reformation. He lived in the mid-1500s. And he says about these cataclysmic descriptions of judgment on evildoers, he says, now... Because no description can deal adequately with the gravity of God's vengeance against the wicked, their torments and tortures are figuratively expressed to us by physical things, that is, by darkness, weeping, and gnashing of teeth, unquenchable fire, an undying worm gnawing at the heart. By such expressions, the Holy Spirit certainly, listen to this sentence, certainly intended to confound all our senses with dread. And part of God's design is to give us a picture in the Scripture of eternity being judged apart from Christ 
and it should cause us to fear, to dread, to, to run to mercy that can be only found in him. And that's a description of this dreadful day of those who are not fearing God. They're not trusting in him. They're trusting in themselves, in their own righteousness, or they're coddling unrepentant sin. And they, the Bible is very clear that there's this day coming that will be very dreadful, where they will be set ablaze. Not a root or branch will stand. It will burn like an oven, and they will be stubble. But likewise, it will also be a liberating day for those who fear his name. Look at verses 2 and 3. So it's a dreadful day for evildoers. And don't think of evildoers as, as, as felons or terrorists that do wicked things. But evildoers are all those that do not trust in God and his goodness. To not trust in God is the heart of evil because it's a kind of idolatry where you're, you're committing cosmic treason against God by not recognizing his his goodness in your life. But those who do fear his name, look at how this day is described. It's described as a liberating day. Verses 2 and 3. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, and they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. On that day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. So, in contrast for those who don't fear his name, who are evildoers, for those who do fear his name, it will be a liberating day. And the descriptions in verses 2 and 3 of how glorious this day will be for those who do fear my name should cause our heart to worship. And, and we're going to think about these phrases here for just a, a few moments. First, it says that the, the sun of righteousness shall rise. In the Old Testament, God's glory is, is often described as a, a shining sun. Listen to Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 and 2. It says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. There's that imagery of this sun rising, and it is the righteousness of God, the glory of God. Verse 2, For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the people's, but the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. So there's this righteousness of God that will be displayed on that last day. But it's, think about this. Now this is beautiful. It, this sun of righteousness shall rise and it will bring, it will with healing in its wings for those who fear his name. And so in Psalm 37, verse 6, listen to what it says about this righteousness that brings healing. It's not only attributing the righteousness to God himself, which clearly he, he is, but it's the righteousness that God will give his people who fear him. Listen to Psalm 37, verse 6. He will make your righteousness Shine like the dawn, the justice of your cause like the noonday. And so this, on this judgment day, for those that are fearing God, trusting in his son Jesus, God's righteousness will be on full display, but it won't only be God's righteousness, it will be God's righteousness that he gives his people, which will bring healing in its wings. And what's this healing? I don't believe this is a, a promise, like some people wrongly interpret, a promise of earthly 
temporary physical healing. I think it's speaking to the healing of the gap, the breach that has been caused between us and God because of our sin. God's righteousness is going to rise and he's going to give righteousness to his people. And now primarily what will be healed is the the great chasm between God and man through the work of his son where he takes their sin and he gives them his righteousness. I mean, verse 2 should cause you to dance. The son of righteousness will rise. God himself will rise with his righteousness. He'll give you his righteousness and he will heal you, healing in his wings. Think of this picture of like a mother hen covering its, 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 its children from wrath, even his own wrath. And what's the implication of this? The end of verse 2, you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Think about a calf, a a little horse or a goat or a a little baby cow that has been stuck in a dingy, manure-filled stall. And he gets freed, finally freed. And that that place has been dark and, 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 and stinky and mildewy. It's been a terrible place to live and eat and sleep. And the picture of the judgment day for the believer is a day when you get released from that. And and the door swings open and, and you go out leaping like a calf that is free from the dingy stall that they've been living in. Friends, this world is a dingy stall. It's fallen. We're, 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 it's like we're, we're, we're mucking around in the manure of this fallen world, the sin around us and the sin in us, and Judgment Day is a day when we're free from all of that. Now, I love me some Louis Armstrong. It's a wonderful world. But I, I, I want to rearrange my man Louis's theology, and I want to point to that wonderful world that will be. We weren't made for this world. We're made for the world to come. And healing will be in the wings. And we will go out leaping like calves from the stall. And then there's this really, this really interesting verse 3. It says, "You." this is speaking of what God will do with those whom he has saved, whom he has brought healing to, who he has released from the dinginess of this fallen world. And he says in verse 3, And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. So not only, this is interesting, because we tend to think, I think by default, and I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with this, but but verse 3 is actually telling us more about judgment. We tend to, by default, think of judgment as being something that God completely does, and certainly that's true. But here in verse 3, we see God the Father using the redemption of his people and bringing them into his execution of judgment of the wicked. So verse 3 says that through these calves that he's released from this stall, that he's going to actually make them reign, judge with him. You shall tread down the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. 
I was trying to think about what, what's a picture of this? What, what's, what's Malachi pointing us to? Why would God say that, that, that we shall tread down the wicked? When I think of salvation, I think of me being snatched from the flaming fire. God sets me over there on the side and says, just watch this, son, and then him do all the work. And certainly that's true. That's true. But I think what's going on here in verse 3 is that this is a picture of how God is glorified through redeeming his children. And so think of, a, think of a bully beating up a child or a young man. A bully has just been plaguing this boy. And a dad knows that his son's getting beat up by this bully. And this dad could just go to the school and just absolutely dominate this kid. Now, no analogy is perfect. I realize that would be a felony and the dad would be thrown in prison. And in a sense, that's what God does. He does it all, right? But God glorifies himself, not by just snapping his fingers on judgment day, but in some way that I, I don't think we can fully understand this side of eternity. He, he again, no analogy is perfect, but he, he redeems his child. He releases him from the bondage of that captivity. And through the redemption, there's some way in which God uses the redemption of his children to actually be the means by which he tramples down the enemy. So I think that what that means is that the redemption of God's people on Judgment Day is part of the means by which God uses to trample, to glory over the evil one and all of his minions and all of that which has been plaguing God's people. So God actually then trains up his children, puts us and uses our salvation and redemption and glorification to be the means by which he tramples over the wicked. How glorious is your salvation? That God brings glory through it and tramples over the wicked by using our lives and our testimonies as the way that he tramples over the wicked. Before we, before we move on to verses 4 through 6, here's this, this thought that I think some may be rattling around in our minds. It, it will be a liberating day for Christians. But we read in the New Testament in places where Christians will also, in a sense, be judged. And in what way will Christians be judged? And should we fear that? Listen to what Romans chapter 14, verses 10 through 12 says. When Paul clearly is speaking to the church, clearly the context of his audience is Christians. He says, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you who, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess. Verse 12, so then each of us, will give an account of himself to God. And then 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So how do these passages about judgment square with the rest of the Bible that talks about especially the explanation of the gospel in the New Testament that says that, that we're, you know, we're not saved by our works. 
verse 12 of Romans 14 says that we will have to give an account of ourselves to God and that, that we will receive what is due, what we've done in the body, whether good or evil. How do we, how do we, how do we put that together with like Romans 8 verse 1 where it says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, here's what I think is going on as we look at these passages that seem to be in tension because we want to understand fully what's happening for believers on that liberating day. Clearly, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It, it, Psalm 130 says that if, if God were to mark our iniquities, who could stand? So, so dear brother or sister that is in Christ, do not picture Judgment Day as a day when you will stand before the Lord and there will be kind of two rock piles and hopefully the rock pile of good deeds is, it outweighs on the scales of God's justice the rock pile of bad deeds and maybe you will get in. If that's your hope, friends, you are hopeless. Psalm 130, if he were to mark our iniquities, who could stand? Rather, the New Testament explains to us that what God does to save a person, listen to me, this is how God causes somebody to go from being an evildoer to a God-fearer. He takes our heart of flesh, our dead heart, that only has the propensity to sin and disobey God. He gives us a new heart that is renewed with new desires and has the gift of faith, whereby then a new creation can trust in Jesus. And through the faith that God gives us, we receive the benefits of Christ's obedience and righteousness. He takes our sin, he dies for it on the cross, so God the Son sends, God the Father sends God the Son to bear his wrath, to bear the Father's wrath, and because Jesus is a perfect, holy, righteous, not just man, but eternally holy God, he has enough, enough righteousness to bear all the wrath of a holy Father. He removes it. And because he's a holy, sinless man, he gives us his righteousness. He takes our sin, he gives us his righteousness. And now, our plea before God is not our deeds, not our works, but Christ's. That's what the good news of the gospel is. It's such good news that it's even, in a sense, scandalous. How can this be? That God would be so gracious to save people who can't be saved by their own works because all of their works are, are like, like filthy rags before God. But knowing that this is the gospel, what are we to make of these verses like in Romans 14 and 2 Corinthians 5 that says, in a sense, we will stand and we will see all of our deeds before a holy God? Here's how I think we should think about this. I think this is pointing us to the fact that our lives matter and what we do matters. How we live matters. And there's coming a day, not when every evil deed will just be, you know, it's, it's just like there's, there's, no, there's no dealing with it. God clearly has dealt with the penalty of our fallenness on the cross. But we will stand before the Lord and we will finally see clearly in HD just how dreadful and wicked our rebellion against God was. And we will see how glorious and how beautiful and how gracious Christ's sacrifice for us is. 
And God will, I don't know how this will work, but in a sense, we will get a picture. I will see his goodness to me. And, and not to shame me, not to condemn me, but I will see all of the things that I have done. And in that moment, I will finally realize the gap between God's grace and my wickedness. And all of that, in God's kindness, will not serve to bring me to a place of condemnation, but it will serve to bring me to a place of worship and joy so that I will be like this calf leaping from the stall because I will know, I will finally really know how good God has been to me. And God, I think, will show me that on that day. He will show his people that on that day. And they will give an account and they will have a new and fresh opportunity to worship God afresh because we will give an account and we will, our plea on that day will be not my works, not my works, but Christ's. And that accounting will be an opportunity for the Christian to worship God fully and see it all clearly. For maybe the first time, unlike we've ever seen it before. So Christians should not fear judgment. And by the way, just another thing, there's other things in the Bible about judgment. Even 2 Corinthians 5, it says we may each receive what is due for what he has done in the body, so there will be varying degrees of reward in heaven. But this is, this is why heaven, I think, will be so glorious, is that there will be no, more, there will be no cause for jealousy. So I will be with a brother in heaven, and he will have served the Lord maybe more fruitfully than I did. But I won't be jealous of him because I will be free from sin. And now his increase will actually only be an opportunity for my joy to increase on his behalf. <laughs> think, think, man, think about how free that is. I mean, God's, the ever-increasing joy of heaven will be so good is that it will completely re reverse the paradigm of this fallen world and all these sins that drag us down and compare ourselves to one another will be reversed and we will be finally free and now one another's joy will only serve to increase our joy. Second question. And how can we prepare for that day? I think he points us to that answer in verses 5. Four, five, and six. How can we prepare for that day? Verse four. Remember the law. So he said, "This is coming. The wicked, the, the, the day of judgment is coming. The wicked will be burned. Those who fear the Lord will be saved." Friends, there are. Listen to me. There are only two types of people really in this world. We categorize ourselves with all these temporary things, you know, through our ethnicities, through our nationalities through all, all sorts of, there are only two types of people, those who fear the Lord and have trusted in Christ and those who do not. And Judgment Day will separate all of humanity into two groups of people. Jesus, at the end of Matthew, says that he will come and he will separate the sheep from the goats. That's, that's all there is. How then can we prepare for that day? Verses 4, 5, and 6. Malachi says, Remember the law of my servant Moses the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet. Now, Elijah has already lived and died, and so I think this is speaking of a new Elijah that will come, which the New Testament interprets for us is John the Baptist. 
from, Mal- from Matthew chapter 3 that Robert read for us earlier. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet, another Elijah. It's John the Baptist. Before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So how can we prepare for that day? Well, verse 4 tells us that we need to remember the law. He points the people back to the law. Why would he do that? That seems like a strange thing. It seems like he would just say, you know, there's a Messiah coming and he's going to take care of everything. But in verse 4, Malachi says, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. I think what's going on here is Malachi is wanting to remind the people of a few things. When he says, remember the law, what is he reminding them of? Well, to, I think, answer that question, we need to understand biblically the purpose of God's law. God's law in the Old Testament that he gave Israel was never intended to bring about salvation. It's not like God had plan A, he had this law through Moses, didn't work out so good, so I'm going to have to kind of come up with plan B, oh, I'm going to hatch this plan of sending my son. No, all of this is part of God's unfolding redemption, his plan, his one plan from eternity past. And so the law in the Old Testament was never meant to do something that God didn't intend it to do. What is the purpose of the law? I think we can think of the purpose of the law broadly in three categories. One is to show us God's holiness, to show us how holy God is. Two is to show us how sinful we are in comparison to God's holiness. And three is to show us what we need to make up for that gap between God's holiness and our sinfulness. So the law shows us what's right, God's holiness, what's wrong, our sinfulness, and what's needed, someone who will bridge the gap. The law was never meant to drive us into ourselves to try and save ourselves through our good deeds. The law is intended to drive us outside of ourselves, to bring us to a point of failure so that we will look to God who alone can do it for us. And that's what the Old Testament is all about. It's pointing us away from ourselves. In a sense, the Old Testament is bringing Israel and us to a place of futility where we will not look at our own righteousness, but we will finally unlock our hands from our own desire to make ourselves right before God through our own merit and hold on to God who alone can do it. So when he says, remember the law, I think he's saying, Remember how needy you are before a holy God and look up and see where your help comes from. Your help comes from the Lord. In verses 5 and 6, he says there's coming one who will, will pave the way for the Messiah that is coming. And he says, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet, or this John the Baptist, this new Elijah, before the great and awesome day of the Lord. In other words, there's this forerunner who's coming to prepare the way, as we read in Matthew. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So how can we prepare for that day? We need to remember the law, not do better, but come to a place of futility to where, secondly, we must turn and trust in Christ. That's what verses 5 and 6, I think, is pointing us to. It's a kind of shadow of the Old Testament. He says, I'm, I'm, I'm sending a forerunner 
And what's this forerunner going to say? He's not going to say, do better. Straighten yourselves up. Make yourself good enough to go to church. He's going to say, repent. Verse 6, he will come and he will preach a message of repentance. Turn, turn your hearts. And I think it's, 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 it's striking that he uses this example of father and children because men were leaders. We need to be the ones that lead in this. We set the temple for the church and the family. That's not to say that if the father is not around or women, if you're married to a man who's not a Christian, that God can't work wonderful things in your life. But as a pattern here, God is telling us, men, repent, lead the way in repentance, and you will transform your family. You'll transform your church. You'll transform your land. Repent, repent, and trust in the one that this forerunner will be talking about, which is Jesus. He alone is the one who can make you right with a holy God. Remember the law. Let go of your your desires, your your attempts to make yourself right. Turn and trust in the one who is coming, who will finally and fully restore you to God. Turn and trust in Christ. Those are the last words of the Old Testament. Turn and trust in Christ and flee from the destruction that is coming. So how does seeing this day, third question, how does seeing that day, that judgment day, help us today? How does seeing rightly that day, knowing that it's coming, how does it help us today? Four quick thoughts before we receive communion. One, we can rest in God's justice. Part of the problem with Israel in the day of Malachi was that they were whining, they were complaining, they didn't think God was just. And when we see that day, we know that God will be just. God will will level every mountain. He will fill every valley. He will right every wrong. He will make everything finally and fully bow to his lordship. Not just things out there in the world, but things in my heart. God will do it, and we can rest that everything will be finally and fully made right we can rest in that last week we read psalm 73 that talked about the psalmist crying out to god for what seemed to be injustice around him and then midway through the psalm he says ah but when i went into the sanctuary of god i understood the end i understood that god will bring justice and now i realize that god is enough for me seeing that day helps us to know that we can rest in god's justice As a kind of consequence of that, I think it leads us to the second thing that I want us to see is that because God is just, because everything will be made right, because because everything will will be handled by God's utter justice, then secondly, we are free to forgive. We're free to forgive others that unjustly act against us. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 9. This is a kind of beautiful description of the Christian life. He says, let let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. In other words, make make your life not about you. Divest yourself of yourself. One of the marks of Christian maturity is the the gift of self-forgetfulness. In verse 14, he continues, Bless those who persecute you. 
Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Now listen to verse 17. It's getting to this sense that we're free to forgive because of God's judgment. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, verse 19, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So because we know that God will finally and fully make everything right, we are free from bringing a kind of personal, earthly vengeance upon those who have wronged us. Now, this does not mean that we shouldn't punish evildoers. The next chapter over in Romans 13 is going to address us as a society, as a culture, and he's going to say that God has raised up civil, imperfect, pagan, unbelieving governments like our own to execute justice on evil people and evil people and even fallen governments like our own will do that imperfectly but God has given a kind of authority to wicked evil governments to bring a kind of imperfect temporary justice to maintain order but personally Romans chapter 12 is speaking about what's going on in our own hearts that because we know that that day is coming when everything will finally and fully be made right it frees us to not have to avenge ourselves verse 19 but leave it to the wrath and the justice of God let's let's bring that even closer to home some of us in this room have been sinned against terribly by people that have been very close to us and without minimizing the pain and the consequences of that, I think that what knowing that God will be just, it, it frees us, it frees us to move past that pain. Not quickly, obviously, I'm not minimizing that at all, but it frees us to move past that pain and give ourselves to a God who will finally and fully make all things right. If that person is an evildoer and doesn't repent, God will judge them. If that person is a Christian that has wounded you in terrible ways, God will use their sin on that day to display his greatness, to bring worship and joy to you and that person. And you will both be released from this dingy stall and leap like calves on that noonday when the sun is blazing in all of its glory. And that joy, that day, the beauty of the picture of that day, friends, is meant now to bring healing to your pain now. Thirdly, we are fueled seeing the judgment of God that's coming. How does it help us today? We are fueled to live for him now. If you're a Christian, don't, Christian, don't just think, oh, well, you know, I'm just going to hold on, do what I want to do eat Cheetos and watch SportsCenter because I'll just wait for Jesus to come back. If that's your logic, you don't understand the logic of the Bible and you may not really understand the logic of the gospel. Listen to how Peter concludes how we should react to this day that's coming. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some of you count slowness, but is patient toward you, 
not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Have you ever considered, verse 9 is a beautiful verse. Have you ever considered that part of God's seeming slowness in sending Jesus back is because he's not yet done gathering all of his people to himself? And what seems to us like slowness is actually God's kindness. And we're in this process of John chapter 6, where Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Jesus' rescue mission is not complete. Jesus is still gathering down soldiers. The Ranger Creed, I will never leave a fallen comrade, right? You've recited it before chow, right? Before you had to go in and eat, before you were at Ranger School. Jesus doesn't leave any of his children on the battlefield. And while the rest of us are back at the mash unit getting stitched up, and we think, why, why, don't, we just, why don't we just end this thing? Come on, Jesus. It's because Jesus is in the middle of John 6, gathering all those that the Father has given him, and he says, I won't lose one of them. So let's get stitched up, and let's go back out, not because Jesus needs our help, but because he's called us to be his means that he brings all of his children home. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me keep reading. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. <laughs> and verse 11, here's Peter's logic. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, since the evil are going to be burned up, since the arrogant, since those who do not fear his name will be, will be, will be wiped away, and the righteous will leap like calves. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Think about that. Our, our posture of sanctification is hastening the day of God's coming. Because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now, I don't know all that's going on in that verse, but I see Peter telling us, man, because all of this is happening, lean forward, live, sanctify, give, give yourselves, fight sin, take God's side against your sin, confess your sin, be in community, tell others about him, live for him, live for him now, because live for him today because of that day. That's the logic of 2 Peter 3. Which leads us to the final point which I kind of dipped into, couldn't, couldn't, couldn't contain myself. We're compelled to share the gospel. We're compelled to just tell others about this Jesus. I mean, how, how wicked is it to know these things? I mean, think about this, Christian. I know we're not all necessarily gifted as great communicators of the gospel. We may not all hold a kind of, you know, official title of minister or preacher or evangelist. But every Christian is required to share the gospel. We're compelled to tell others about Jesus. And there's so many beautiful examples of that going on in this church. There's people in this church that every Sunday go and preach the gospel and share the gospel with people in prison. If you're interested in going to the, the jail, the Muskogee County Jail and sharing the gospel, encouraging 
inmates in those prisons, both men and women, you can get in touch with Chris McGuire. We have a brother here in our church who goes and, and, and street preaches. And I know not everybody's called to that, but that's just one example of, of this compelling. But all of us, whether we're called to do jail ministry or whether we're called to share the gospel uh, you know, in, in, some, in some sort of formal evangelism way, all of us are called to share the gospel in our spheres of influence because, friends, think about it. Just think about it logically. If these things are true, which they are, what type of people would we be if we didn't tell others that we loved about it? If you had some sort of magnificent divine radar and you knew that a tsunami was about to hit the beach city that you lived in a week from them and you were the only person that knew that in that city, what kind of person would you be if you didn't say, hey everybody, a tsunami's coming. Protect yourself. That's the that's what's going on here. So do you know the gospel and do you love people? If you're a Christian, the answer to both of those questions should be yes. And who can you share? Who can you, who, who can you share and just say, look, this is what God has done with me. God is holy. We're sinful. Jesus died to bear his wrath for us. And those that trust in Jesus will be saved. Maybe it's not that clinical or that forced in that way, but you know that news. That news has gripped your heart. That news has caused you. You know it will cause you to leap like a calf someday. And you seek to make your life about weaving that news into your conversations with those that you love. I think that's all of our responsibility. And I, friends, I don't say that as a chasten to you. I say that as a confession that I need to do that better. It can be so easy in the South to just hunker down into church attendance and fellowship. Church attendance, Bible studies, and fellowship. Church attendance, Bible studies, and fellowship. Church attendance, Bible studies, and fellowship. And all the while, that day is coming. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm all for church attendance, Bible studies, and fellowship. But Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. Remember, what's the distinction of those who will leap like calves? Those who fear his name. Knowing the fear of the Lord. That's a Christian. We persuade others. And he goes on in chapter 5 to say that we have this ministry of, of reconciliation. Listen to Spurgeon. And listen to me, especially if you know yourself by God's grace to not be a believer. You walked into this room maybe thinking you were, and you, now you know that you're not. Or maybe you came in knowing that you weren't, and you're here investigating the Christian gospel, invited by a friend, and here you are. Listen to Charles Spurgeon. He was a Baptist preacher back in the mid-1800s in London, England. And he says in a sermon, and I say these words to you as well, Meet me in heaven. Do not go down to hell. There's no coming back from that abode of misery. Why do you wish to enter the way of death when heaven's gate is open before you? Do not refuse the free pardon, the full salvation which Jesus grants to all who trust in him. Do not hesitate and delay. You've had enough of resolving. Come to action. Believe in Jesus now with full and immediate decision. Take with you words, come unto, you, come unto your Lord this day, even this day. 
Remember, O soul, it may be now or never with you. Let it be now. It would be a horrible thing if it was, if it was never. Again, I charge you, meet me in heaven. Friends, repentance is a gift that God gives you. It's not something that you can decide to bring when you want to square your life away. And if you hear God speaking to you right now, do not harden your heart. You may have questions. Guess what? I still got questions. Well, you think we figured this all out? Yeah. Spurgeon's not saying stop thinking. He's saying enough of your resolving that in your sort of man-centered way is somehow causing you to just kind of delay, delay, delay. Come to action. In other words, turn from trusting in yourself and trust in Jesus. You will stand before God someday. Judgment day is coming. And your only hope on that day is that God himself would save you through the sacrifice of his son and work in you. Trust in him. Trust in his works and not your own. Would you do that today? What do you have to do to, to trust in Jesus? It's something that happens in your heart and your head. You turn away. You make a decision. God enables you to do that. So if you're even thinking about this right now, I think that's evidence that God is enabling you to do this. You turn away. You say, Lord, I, I, I don't want to trust in myself anymore. I don't want to trust in, in my own righteousness. I don't want to live this life I've lived. I don't want to be an arrogant, proud person. I know, I don't understand it all, but I know that my only hope is that you would save me. And what this Bible's telling me is that you've sent your son to bear your own wrath, as strange as this seems, and that if I will, if I will trust in him, his life, his death, his victorious resurrection, I don't understand it all, but if I will trust in him, I can be saved. I will, I will someday go out leaping like a calf. I can live for you and be part of a family. Do that today. And don't just do that privately in your own heart and leave this room. Talk to somebody that you know to be a Christian and say, I, I, I want to trust in Jesus today before you leave this building. Let me pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, as we come now to receive communion, to come to the Lord's table, as is our custom on the first Sunday of every month, may I'm asking you to do two things. One, would you prepare the hearts of believers in this room? Would you help us to be just ever mindful of how needy we are that our only hope is Christ and that this bread and this juice represents Christ's sacrifice on the cross, his body which was broken and his blood that was spilled to atone for our sin. So we come feasting on the bread of heaven, Jesus himself, who alone can satisfy your wrath and satisfy our souls. For Christians in this room, may we come examining our lives in light of Christ's, in light of our lives, not to put us into a state of condemnation, but to afresh bring us in neediness to your table, saying it's only by Jesus, only by your Son can we come to you and come to this meal. And then, Lord, as we feast on Jesus, secondly, would you cause us to have a kind of taste 
that day when we will be around your table and we will leap like calves and we will be with you forever and joy will be ever increasing. May you cause us to, to examine ourselves as we come to the table, but get up from this table with great joy and worship. Lord, I pray that you do all these things for your glory and for our good in Jesus' name. Amen.